Welcome to See Her Speak podcast, episode 49. In this episode, I talk with reporter Sarah Carr about her reporting on inequities in education. We touch on many important topics, so I hope you find it helpful to stimulate your thinking as well. Thanks so much for listening. After listening to this episode, don't forget to check out the website, www.seeherspeakpodcast.com, to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript for this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. I'm also starting to include resources in the show notes, so check that out, you know, depending on what podcast platform you're listening to. Well, welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast. This is episode 49, and today I have Sarah Carr, and I'll have Sarah start by introducing herself. Yeah, well, first I want to say I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here today, um, and I am a, a longtime education journalist um, and have mo- mostly focused on issues of educational equity um, in various contexts and places where I've reported Um and I got interested in reporting more on, on reading um, during the pandemic when I was overseeing an education reporting team at the Boston Globe. Um, I'm now an independent journalist and living in New Rochelle, New York. Fantastic. I'm so excited to have you here. And Sarah, it's been great to connect with you since the beginning of the pandemic when we first connected uh, my doctoral student, Sue Bao, doing a paper on the potential losses in literacy skill associated with pandemic school closures. And you had reached out and worked with Sue on a piece. And, and also um, we got connected. And I've really enjoyed connecting with you uh, since that time for the past few years now. Uh, but like you said, you've been writing about equity in education for over two decades now. I'm wondering what you drew you to this topic And what have you learned in your most recent reporting on access to reading instruction for Black and Latino children in particular? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I, um, you know, I I came to education reporting somewhat by accident. Um, But um, as I as I did more and more reporting and my first experience really reporting on K-12 schools was in New York City as a graduate student. I just felt like schools were kind of microcosms of America <laughs> um, and kind of all of the, you know, all of the promise and the potential and a lot of good was there, but all of the bad <laughs> and all of the isms um, and all of the inequality that kind of defines America was also there. And so I kind of saw it as a really, um, a really rich rich, rich beat for um, exploring huge societal challenges, but not without kind of without without real hope um, at times. And, and that, um, that piece you did uh, in I'd love to hear more about that. It was such a fantastic project that you did in, in New York with the families and the teachers. Um, do you mean the um, the podcast? Yes. Project. OK. Um, so I did a podcast called What My Students Taught Me, um, and it was the initial idea was to feature teachers talking about the most challenging student they ever taught. Um, and I went out and did a couple of prototype interviews um, 
that were interesting, but really stilted <laughs> um, to just have a teacher going on and on and on um, about a challenging student. Um, and so we came up with the idea of interviewing the student, or in many cases, the former student as well, um, and doing kind of a story core style audio narrative um, that, um, that, um, that where they both kind of reflected on how they worked through this challenging relationship or didn't. Um, and having the students take just added so much. Um, and I think what, what struck me about those was just how much it spoke to kind of the importance of trauma informed teaching in almost every case, there was some kind of trauma, like small or large that the student had experienced that maybe the teacher wasn't aware of, or wasn't fully aware of, um, that led to this disconnect. And it's fascinating that even during those interviews, the teacher would find out even later what might've happened at, at the time that was unknown. I, I just, I will link that in the show notes. Cause I, I think that's such an amazing series you did and really to, it, it it seems like it set the stage for how you really go to the people that are in the trenches and really try to understand what's happening on the ground uh, in the broader sense, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I really, I, I mean, I think that there was one of your listeners that wrote in with a question about experts, but I really feel like families are the experts <laughs> um, and can be really undervalued at times as expert voices for the work that we're doing. Um, and I guess the the pieces that I've been most drawn to are ones that look at a point of systematic inequality through the lens of the people who are experiencing it, um, which is um, so often, not always, but so often students and families. Yeah, I'd love for you to to um, take us through that a bit. You mentioned that I had a listener, Sarah Hart, who wrote in on Twitter that she wanted to wonder how you found experts to inform your reporting, but it does tie to this, this theme of who are you really talking to and, and letting them tell their stories. Can you tell us more about that process? Yeah, I mean, I think with like, with experts as in researchers um, and people who, whose careers are kind of focused on um, writing and thinking about the topics I'm reporting on. Um, there's no one way um, I go about finding those sources. I, I think it's a mixture of um, word of mouth. <laughs> you know, I'll interview one expert and ask them for recommendations. Um, a lot of reading, um, and looking at studies and the literature that's out there. Um, and this was more the case before COVID, but it's still the case at conferences um, can also be a, a really good potential source. One, one thing that, um, I, you know, things that aren't places where I tend to find experts are social media. I think people probably think that happens more than it does. Um, like I, I, sometimes I get ideas from like expert tweets, but it's, it's rare that I'll see a researcher tweeting and we'll be compelled to follow up with them for a story. Um, and mass appeals, you know, I think there are, are some services where you can send out a description of the story you're working on. It, it goes out as a blast, but I've never 
I've never found those to be as helpful as more targeted appeals. Um, but, um, over the course of my career, like early on, I did a lot more breaking news pieces, um, for daily newspapers, um, that also often involved kind of trying to find expert voices, but more on a deadline. Whereas now I do a lot of reporting where I'll spend three months, six months, nine months working on the same story and have a lot more time. And one thing I've noticed is with time, my sources have become much more diverse. Um, there's many, a lot more women um, and there's a lot more people of color. Um, and I think that there is this, um, you know, frankly, like white men are some of the most easy kind of out there to reach experts. And if you need to reach somebody in two hours, it's it, it can be easier. And so that's one thing that I've really valued about having, having more time. Um, and there was a piece um, that you were quoted in, um, Tiffany, um, about the high cost of private evaluations for, um, for, for children. And, um, and at one point, I think there was kind of a male quote unquote expert source added into that late in the game. But at one point that was the first story that really had a lot of expert voices that were all women, women that I could remember having, having written, (laughs) um, and I, I think there's one positive thing is I think there's a lot more awareness in the media of this in general. And there's, there's some really good source audit programs that different newsrooms are piloting um, that kind of allow you to do a breakdown of the demographics of your sources and like, and, and get into the details, not just sort of the overall totals, but is this person being presented as an expert in their field or not, um, where they appear in the story. Um, so a, a lot of that has provided, I think, useful, useful accountability for, for journalists, including myself, who've fallen short at times. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I love hearing that that is a focus within journalism now and, and that you're thinking through how sources are representing the diversity of the, the United States in general and, and potentially also thinking about how to get to sources who are truly on the ground. I've always appreciated that about your reporting that, mm-hmm. you know, it's one thing to be an expert and I have to be careful with this myself. I have such amazing school and family partners and I want to be a voice for them, but I don't want to take their voice away. So it's always walking that fine line of how to, you know, um, magnify their message, but not take it over. And, and I really appreciate how you really talk to families. You, you know, you, you, you ask the tough questions of the experts, but then you chase it down and say, how is this looking in, in with families in the schools that they're working in? And I also love how you think about it overall within the system. When I've been interviewed before, especially about this pandemic loss, one of the biggest things I'm trying to think through uh, in these interviews is shine a light on the fact that these problems were there before and the pandemic has exacerbated them, but schools are not in a vacuum. They're part of, like you said, they're part of the culture. So everything that the child's experiencing in everyday life, that's brought into the school and what's happening in everyday life 
impacts the school. Uh, so I really appreciate that. Um, and, and thinking through that, when you talk to families in particular, what are you finding are the biggest pitfalls? You mentioned the cost of, of uh, you know, assessments, but what are the biggest pitfalls they have in trying to access resources to improve their child's reading instruction? Yeah, um, I mean, it it can vary a lot, but I think for a lot of them, kind of an early, I don't know if I would call it pitfall, but it can be, and it's definitely kind of a real challenge is just awareness and diagnosis. Um, it, you know, identifying that there is a problem and then having the, you know, the, the confidence to kind of raise that with, with all kinds of people, <laughs> um, because it's not as simple as just saying to a teacher, <laughs> I think, um, I think my child's struggling with reading, please help them as we all know. <laughs> um, and, and so I just think like the administrative burden on parents when it comes to dyslexia and reading challenges it's just enormous. It's enormous. Um, and, um, and, and also just, I mean, besides kind of the administrative burden, just, as I said, the, the confidence to, um, to even kind of raise it and flag it with people who you may or may not have a trusting relationship. Um, and kind of voice out loud that your child might be struggling. I think that comes much more easily for some parents than for others. Um, but a lot of, I mean, the, the, the one piece on evaluations really dug in on just how hard it can be for families to get that dyslexia diagnosis um, and how much money they might need on the one hand, or if there isn't the money, the, the time and the ability to kind of um, navigate all these steps to get the evaluations um, covered in other ways. Um, but then, uh, you know, even, even with the diagnosis, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that help is coming or that the right kind of help is coming. And so it just, I think it's kind of a you know, just a never ending effort for a lot of, a lot of families, um, in that they might, they might get a diagnosis of dyslexia, um, but then face, you know, a financial barrier in accessing kind of private services that might be more readily available, or they might face like all kinds of barriers within the public school system, including a, a lack of kind of any appropriate resources. This ties into a study that a colleague of uh, in our field did looking at who accesses services for children with developmental language disorder. And we know that only about 20% of those children receive support. And those are children who have listening comprehension difficulties, not always problems with word reading, but there's a high comorbidity with dyslexia, about 50%. But in this study, it highlighted that it wasn't the severity of difficulty that, that indicated who received services, which is what we would hypothesize probably right up front. Well, it's the ones who are most severe who are getting the services schools because schools have to make decisions and have limited resources. 
But actually what it was, the, the first predictor was the parents, and in this case, it was, it was measured by mothers, socioeconomic status that predicted who received services. So, uh, you know, digging deeper, you know, parents who had the either education or the money to work through the problem of receiving services. And that was so disheartening and really show, you know, highlights how it's such a social justice issue because it's not equitable. And you really highlighted that with the cost of having to uh, you know, work through a dyslexia diagnosis. And I see this constantly as an education researcher that when I talk to parents about their child's struggle with dyslexia, uh, you know, I often hear, well, I just gave up and I went out and paid you know, $3,000 for a uh, evaluation for dyslexia. Once I got the evaluation, then I took it to the school and then the school might not have had the services. So then I just decided I'm gonna go out and get individualized tutoring and so that is, that's real, you know, and you do such a good job reporting on that because that's, that is true privilege to have the time, the mental energy, the um, resources, both financial and education to work through that. And I think also the connections to other people to be able to talk through mm -hmm. it, like other parent groups, maybe, or just those connections. Um, and, and also kind of the maybe the enculturation to push back on a system which is not true of every culture mm -hmm. um, and and I think that that also speaks to the difficulty in and making it more equitable across the system yeah no that that was very well put <laughs> um, and I and I also think just like the privilege in being vulnerable too, you know, that, that is a privilege too. Um, you know, I think there are some people who are so used to being judged and discriminated and treated unfairly by systems, including schools that they don't want to talk about any like potential vulnerability or deficiency in their, in their kids. And you can totally understand why. Um, so I think that's, that's all, it's just, it's, there's just lots of different layers, but I, you know, early on in this reporting, her dyslexia referred to as a privileged diagnosis and it, it, it really is true in a lot of respects. And I, and I hope that that is changing, um, but it's, it's a slow process. And I think the system set up to support children with dyslexia have often been driven by academics and academics have is you know in the past and, and now still is very white and male so you see these boards uh, you know and and you see this you know work around dyslexia and it often is uh, uh, white um, highly educated males and sometimes females too that are really pushing this and so it's uh you know, it can seem like it is this very privileged um, diagnosis. And that diagnosis has been used in the past to receive accommodations within educational systems, which also screams privilege because it's like, okay, I, my child needs extra time, which is true for children with dyslexia. But when you're getting children who have gone out and gotten a diagnosis and then are coming in to get accommodations that then add to their ability to succeed, then you just see it snowballing, you know? And I think the other thing we often don't think about is the, the intergenerational 
uh, aspects of impairment that we see. So we know that dyslexia runs in families and so does developmental language disorder. And because of that, we often see parents who have been traumatized by their own educational experience. And so the last thing they want to do is go into a school and, you know, kind of discuss that past trauma they've had. And in some ways I've seen parents who have this trauma also feel like, I just want my child to have less contact with the school. Like the less is better, right? Like I don't, I just want to create other avenues for success. And, and I think it's, it's just so wrong to put that burden on the family on something that really should be driven by society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And I mean, you, there's, it's, it's such a, it can be such a hard fight for people who kind of bring all kinds of privilege. Um, And I mean, I think a lot of others just don't, for for whatever reason, often because of a combination of what you just described, because of the trauma they experienced themselves, and a potential kind of lack of capacity and time to engage in that kind of administrative burden, just don't don't even engage in the fight. And you can kind of understand mm-hmm. understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really brought up too. I mean, the the impact of systemic racism on this as well, because you have. Um, you know, uh, very clearly documented the difficulties with children of color being assumed to have a behavioral disorder, uh, disruptive behavior versus actually having a difficulty learning and how that bias plays out. And that really plays into this as well. I think so much so, and I'm very thankful that you're starting to report on, on that directly, very directly. Uh, which I feel like was always an undercurrent that was not stated explicitly uh, that needed to be. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I feel, you know, I mean, the, the teaching force is in the, um, the teaching core in the public schools is 80% white. <laughs> um, and I just, I think that implicit bias really is huge in all of this um, in in kind of special education referrals and evaluations, but also just in kind of these daily interactions in the classrooms um, that that really shape kids' educational experience. And I think that was that was one thing that really struck me is just as I got more and more into reporting this um, and spoke to more families, I just realized every family of color that I had interviewed about their child's reading struggles at one point or another had felt like they were, there was this push to diagnose and remediate them for behavior um, rather than academics. Um, And, um, and, and just that it's, it's not, you know, dyslexia might be a kind of a good case study for that, but that's, it's about much more than dyslexia and about this, this systemic racism that leads to this emphasis on kind of controlling um, and behavior when it comes to a lot of kids of color and on to strengthening academics and academic remediation when it comes to white students. Um, and I really feel like that's thinking of researchers and study, that it's an understudied area in the context of special education. Um, I mean, there's, 
there's, uh, um, I, I just, you know, when I was pitching these stories <laughs> to, um, and it's, it's not that it isn't studied, but a lot of editors, they want kind of, is there data? Is there data? And I was like, well, not, not exactly, <laughs> but it, it's true. <laughs> um, and there's all this sort of data around it, um, around implicit bias. Um, but, um, but, um, so it's, um, yeah, but but I really feel like it's it's just that is sort of the underlying thing behind a lot of my reporting. And there was there was one um there was one person I I spoke to who I thought articulated it really well and he said that um you know schools are really tied into this idea um that um that if he behaved better he would learn better and not nearly as tied into the notion that if he learned better he would behave better and i think that's that can be true across the board but it's it's especially true for for black and brown students in their experience in the schools oh i i sarah we definitely need more research in this area i'm happy to say that i have doctoral students i feel so hopeful for the future when i train students because they are very interested in, in really capturing this. And the first step is even to have metrics to capture uh, how systemic racism is affecting the educational culture and schools. And I have a doctoral student looking at some measures and very grateful. And I know you've interviewed Nicole Patenteri, who's one of my dear friends and colleagues, and we're, we just put a grant in to work on this. So I, I'm glad to hear that this data is also needed from the reporting point of view, because we we feel like it's just, it needs to be captured in a data-driven way. And some of it's driven by the fact that there aren't, aren't assessments out there to capture it the way we need to capture it. So that's, that'll be, that'll be great to do. But I also like how you said, like, you know, you, you're getting the ground reporting. If there's no data that's exactly capturing it, you're going to talk to these, you're talking to the families and they're like, we don't need the data. Our child is living yeah. every day. Yeah, and in every single family, <laughs> it came up in in some way. It was just it was the most recurrent theme, and across, um, at least for the families of color that I've interviewed, across socioeconomic status, um, and geography and place and private and public schools, um, you know, at, at, at one point or another, that was a, a real fear that um that their their child was you know they might be being encouraged to put them in a program for kids with emotional disturbance um or just kind of getting in trouble more and more on a daily basis and getting calls um so um i felt yeah it was it was really powerful and and and, and heartbreaking in a lot of cases and you're so right that bidirectionality if you instead of blaming the child fix the system and that you know that then will create a system in which the child is supported and uh, then in turn would have less hopefully you know we'd see less uh, difficulties because the child's in a supportive system that's working with them i think we have a lot to learn too from healthcare you know healthcare is i think ahead of us in the ahead of the educational field in documenting the systemic racism and inequities. So I think, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot of this, you know, I work for MGH, so we talk a lot about these, these issues and it's really striking. And I remember reading 
in the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers, he had a whole section on families with low socioeconomic status versus high socioeconomic status and how they interacted with doctors. The high socioeconomic status would just really question the doctor, like in a dialogue, you know, like, oh, you said this, why are you making that decision? Well, let me portray my, you know, my experience and this, this real kind of collaboration versus those from low SES were really much more defaulting and trusting and Mm -hmm. hesitant to share, but rightfully so. Um, And so I do, I think that plays out in, you know, education as well in terms of that dialogue, you know, joining as a kind of a team with the schools versus an adverse relationship, which is not driven by the parents, Mm -hmm. can be driven by the system in which they live in and the experiences they've had across all systems, because education is just a system, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, and, and I think you're right. I mean, it's not like I mean, I sort of cringe when I hear we have a lot to learn about the healthcare system, <laughs> but at least it's kind of a, like, it's, it's, it's sort of n- a known piece of it and a quantified piece. Whereas I don't think it's like acknowledged as much. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I, um, with, with the education system and I think there's, there's more of an assumption in some, among some people, aren't we all kind of on the same team <laughs> um when that's you know that kind of breaks down in so many cases when you look at kind of interactions on the individual level and um i'm just finishing up a piece right now on um disparities in access to early intervention services and it's i mean i i don't need to tell <laughs> tell this audience about that but but it has struck me just how how little there is in the mainstream media and in kind of popular awareness about that um, and how much it shapes kind of these disparities that we're talking about now at the K-12 level, um, just in that you have a, a disproportionately white, wealthy population of families that's accessing these services from birth on um, and re- reducing the likelihood significantly that they'll even need special education when they get to K-12 schools Um, and how not, not everything, but how much could be kind of helped by, by really a concerted effort to address and and even just kind of talk about inequities there. I think you're right. I I also cringe when it comes to healthcare, because I think we're just at the pre, what I think of as the (laughs) pre-implementation stage, which when I do implementation science, pre-implementation is just shining a light on the barriers and facilitators. Yeah, and at least there is that. And that's, that's, yeah. (laughs) I think the solution part comes later and that's, you know, we're not quite there, but um, I do wonder in terms of thinking about solutions, you've done you do you, you do your reporting really does shine a light on what is happening in the system and what are the barriers, especially for persons of color. What do you see as some of the solutions from these discussions to the barriers, especially for persons of color when they're accessing educational resources? Yeah, I mean the the early intervention um, is definitely one, um, like addressing some of these disparities as as soon as possible. Um, and I think when we move into K-12, um, it, you know, there's a discussion about sort of transforming general ed on the one hand and, and about special ed on the other. And I just 
I think we really need to do both. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it can't, it can't be addressed just through access to special education and diagnosis of dyslexia and a lot of the push to, um, to really strengthen reading um, instruction across the board um, for kids starting, starting at the earliest levels is, is really crucial. Um, you know, I worry sometimes just about how much that conversation is dominated by phonics and phonemic awareness and, and feel like that's, that has been a ma major oversight in so many communities and school districts, but you just don't want to see places, whether intentionally or unintentionally, thinking it's enough <laughs> um, just to reintroduce more phonics and not looking at, um, um, at, at really kind of strengthening all these different kinds of skills and the way we teach them. Um, but I, you know, I feel like there's always going to be kids who are going to need more than the general education curriculum. Um, and so these, all these entry points and access related to special education, um, and strengthening services also need to be a piece of it. Um, and I, and I think that, um, you know, thinking of that implicit bias, I just think that the the efforts to diversify the teaching profession and educators and researchers are really tied in with this. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I don't know the data, maybe, maybe you do, but, um, but I suspect that if, you know, if the teaching core is 80% white, that the percentage who have Wilson or Orton Gillingham or some other certification is even more. Um, and, and that's, um, that's, that's a huge, a huge challenge. Um, so I don't know. And this, you mentioned, I mean, the phenomenal work of Nicole Patton Terry, but I think that that's something that she's really amazing at reminding people of is just how, how broad and holistic of a problem um, this, this is and not focusing on, on single source solutions and expecting it to really have transformational change. I think that's such an important point, that single source solution. I, I think I used to think of progress as, as like a stair step, you know, like tackle one thing and then tackle the next. But I've thought more about um, kind of the web and the connectivity we have. So if you lift up one area, that's fine, but it's all connected to this web. And if the rest of the web is being pulled down, even the one node of that web that you're pulling up is not going to raise the whole entire web, right? Like I think, we, you know, I think about this in terms of, I think these uh, analogies came through much more because of the internet and the connectivity we know about the internet. Uh, but I think they apply really to the system level, you know, that we're talking through is that you do have to address all of these nodes, but addressing them one at a time um, is a human nature, I think, but it also can be a real pitfall, right? Because then you think, yeah. well, I did solve that. You know, I solved it. And you don't want to let kind of the fact that there are all these nodes yeah. deter people from addressing one that's right in front of their um, their face that, that can be tackled. Right. Um, and yeah. so it's, yeah. It's kind of balancing the overwhelm mm -hmm. of tackling a system and with the 
uh, empowering to change, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and the truth is that like, you know, there are a lot of districts that are and can right now reintroduce more phonemic awareness and phonics. And that's that's great and really important. And, and it's just sort of supporting that and happening, but reminding reminding people that, that that alone in the long run is not sufficient. Um, right. It's almost like, I think when I work with districts, we talk a lot about five-year plans. That probably comes from grants because grants are often five years. I think five-year plans you know, there are pros and cons to that too, but they can at least give you a sense of where you're going. And it recognized that solving this now, this one difficulty is not going to solve everything. There's still a long-term plan in place, but it can be really tricky. I really also appreciate how you brought up this link between general education and special education. I think that's often neglected. I also think that relates to money because you have, you know, districts have money, you know, directed to special education, money directed to general education. And sometimes, you know, as much as they're working together, it almost goes down to a money issue. So when I'm pulled in to do some research studies with districts, it's often through the special education lens, since my expertise is as a speech language pathologist is with dyslexia and language disorder. And one of the first questions I ask is, well, let's talk about what's happening in your general education what is happening at the tier one classroom level. And I will, I get this less now, thankfully, I think there's improvement, but I used to get, well, that's a general education issue. We pulled you in to talk about special education. Mm-hmm. It's almost like stay in your lane. And it's, like, <laughs> we, it's a bigger issue and, and some work by Sharon Vaughn, which is such great work, but we've known this for some time is that we have better outcomes when there's a link a direct link between this, the what's happening in the classroom and what's happening in special education. This may seem obvious, but it's good to have the data to show it that mm-hmm. children that have that linkage. It's mm-hmm. not a dosage issue, you know. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it reminds me of exercise. Like I can go exercise, you know, uh, for an hour a day, and then if I do, if I just laid on the couch the rest of the time, as much as I'd like to think that's going to solve you know, any health issues. It's not because then, but you know, unfortunately, maybe for our time management, we know now that it has to be a consistent activity over the day. Mm -hmm. And I think that can appear that way with special education, like, well, we're just going to have this time and we're going to work on it and then back to the classroom. uh, And we know that doesn't work. And so I appreciate that you're really focusing on that link uh, between those two, because I also see that in reporting and I don't know if you've experienced this, Sarah, doesn't it seem like there's like general education reporters versus special education reporters? Yeah, no, I was just thinking about that as you were talking about it, that like within the realm of education journalism, there's there's been that there, there's been those silos also in a problematic way. And I think and I and I think that back earlier in my career when I had less time to do stories and faced a lot more deadline pressures that a lot of it was kind of, this is a special education story, or this is a general education story. And it's, um, and that it's, it's only in more recent years that I've realized how interconnected it is. Um, And I mean, you saw that great series, I think it won a Pulitzer that a Texas reporter did a few years ago on their quota, they had some figure, it was like, I, I can't remember, it was 7% or 8%, but they, um, whatever it was, it was illegal um, regarding identification for special education. And that, I mean, it was 
really important, but you just think about it and that's, it's not, it's not enough. Um, but, um, and it's, I mean, that's sort of the challenge that, that we all face is like, um, just the interconnectedness of all of these policies. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, but special education is where just by far and away families have the greatest kind of legal rights behind them. And it's, it is important not to forget that and how, how important it is. Yes, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, some of the laws that are coming down, like the dyslexia screening laws have been a way to bridge this gap between early, early intervention, but also general education, special education, because, you know, districts are now mandated in Massachusetts to do screening for dyslexia. And the way the guidance came out, the law is really in kindergarten only, but the guidance is coming out for screening kindergarten, first and second grade, all the way up to third, actually. And I think you know, districts are looking at that data and it's really helping them to ideally reflect on what's happening in general education, because if you have such an, you know, a high rate of children who are being flagged as having difficulty, uh, that you know, causes the reflection on what am I doing in the classroom? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so I think I'm hoping in the best case scenario, what I'm seeing is that it is creating a bigger discussion, even though that law was really focused on dyslexia from a special education vantage point. I think it's forcing uh, a discussion across special education and general education in general, uh, which I think is so important. Um, Glad to see happening. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, um, I mean, I remember back like when charter schools <laughs> first started becoming big, there was this big emphasis on learning from each other um, and it didn't really happen nearly enough. But I think there's a similar analogy with special and general education is that they don't learn enough from each other. Um, it starts in the universities too, because but, even as a, you know, when you're getting trained, do you train as a special education teacher, you train, train as a general education teacher. So it even starts in the you know, at the educational system, the higher educational system, and there's not as much collaboration. And I, you know, I've dealt with that too. Being from the special education side, sometimes I hear that things from the general education side and I'm like, oh, I don't even know. I, I didn't know that, you know, it's not really on my radar and vice versa. So um, learning from each other is so important. I did want to go back to, within the context of our discussion, think through what you found about the pandemic and how you've seen, because, you know, your reporting happened all through the pandemic, and I wondered how you saw the pandemic impacting this access, both maybe in negative, of course, but then were there positives at all? And, and can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, I became engaged in this, like, totally with the question of, you know, how, how were struggling readers doing during school closures, and I just felt like as I started reporting that piece, I just kept getting ideas for more and more stories and lines of inquiry. Um, and it's kind of built, built since then. Um, but, um, but I, um, you know, there, there was like definitely just, um, reduced access and, and, and especially initially kind of when I started reporting that first story and, it was 2020. Um, 
you know, families who felt like their um, kids weren't getting the services in their IEP and ones who felt like they weren't making as much progress with online versus um, in person. And so I felt like initially kind of a lot of my conversations focused on less access, but as I've talked to people more and more, I feel like for a lot of families, the pandemic was this turning point and reckoning that I wouldn't say was necessarily good because a lot of the reckoning was really painful and kind of realizing these longstanding issues, but has potentially led to some positive outcomes um, in terms of being at home and realizing that their child was struggling with reading. And that's been a conversation that I've had with a, a lot of parents um, or just realizing that what they were getting wasn't working <laughs> um, and they needed something else. Like in, in, in a few cases, there was access to kind of more resources um, through pilots and, and tutoring um, and kind of the money that's been flowing into the public schools. So I think it's, it's, it's really, it's really been mixed, but I think it's, um, and I'd be curious to hear your take on this, but I think in a lot of states, not all of them and not fast enough, but I think the dyslexia advocacy community is diversifying. And I think that the pandemic has played a role in that. It's not just about that, but I think it's been, it's been a part of it. I agree. I think that uh, my experience with our, um, study participants has been that they're telling us that they are much more aware of what's happening now because they see their students struggling. Mm -hmm. They knew they were, but they see it firsthand. And it's a different experience when you see something firsthand and you have a sense of what, you know, what's happening. I also you know what we found in, in our um, districts that were classified as high poverty districts, they just had less in-time school as well. Some districts were able to have in-person school, and I'm not saying that solved everything, but it definitely was an access issue versus other districts did not have the ability for many reasons to have in-person. And so there was a whole loss of, you know, of children. And I still think we're trying, we're going to have to, we're going to be slowly discovering some of the trauma associated with that. I, I don't think we've even touched the scratch the surface of it, in my opinion, um, because we had, for instance, a district we work with who have approximately 2,500 kindergartners. And for the year after, so that fall of 2020, about 800 of those 2,500 kindergartners were just lost in the system. No access, no idea where they were. And when we had meetings, you know, with the district, it, it was torturous. There were many tears. It's like, where are these kids? You know, where are they? What's happening with them on a daily basis? You know, what's going on? And and many of them, of course, their families were in survival mode. And I think that we're still, I think we're still just going to uncover some of those stories that haven't been, we haven't really focused on. And, and also just thinking how the system neglects. Oh, and, and that's, and, and it is a system level issue, in my opinion, as I've said, and I know you focus on that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot more reporting to do and I'm glad you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, there, you know, I remember there was a, back in 2020, um, there was, there was some expert who said, 
you know, let's just reset and do over a year. <laughs> and at the time I was like, that's, you know, that, but I, as I think about it, it actually made a, makes a lot of sense from an equity standpoint. Cause I think the, you know, the, the privileged families that we started this conversation with, they're moving on, you know, they're, they've kind of found ways to make up for gaps over the last couple of years. And, but there's a lot of families that can't move on in that same way um, and have these gaps that are going to make things harder for years and decades to come. And I do, I do feel like some kind of resetting like that um, might have actually made sense. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, and also, I, I think we also neglect to talk about the loss of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have so many of our families lost key family members, and I feel like that's also glossed over now somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, shocked, it is. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's yeah, cool. yeah. I think people don't. They yeah, they don't want to everybody's so kind of craving some return to normalcy um, that just don't want to engage with all this trauma. That's still very much kind of a part of our, a part of our life. I know we've talked a lot about the barriers and, and what's been reported on, but I don't know about you, Sarah. I feel actually though hopeful. And when I really think take a long range view, I feel a bit hopeful because I do feel like this work of pre-implementation of really figuring out and shining a light on what's happening makes me hopeful, even though when you're doing it, it can feel so tough. I just think for so long, we didn't even shine a light on it. So if you don't, don't even acknowledge it at all, how is it ever going to be addressed? So I wondered if you felt, you know, how do you feel about, you know, moving forward in the educational space? Do you, are you feeling hopeful? And if you are, what are you hopeful about? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to reading instruction, I do think there is a lot to be hopeful about. I mean, if you just look at how much state policy (laughs) has transformed in most states, you know, not all of them, but most states. Um, And, um, you know, this, this real reckoning among teachers, like what ways and openness to look at kind of ways that they were underserved themselves in their own education. Um, And, and the, I mean, you know, I did a piece from Fairfax that looked at, you know, the NAACP's engagement in this and real impact (laughs) in a, in a short amount of time on, on a district and the way they approach reading. So I do think there are a lot of things to be, um, a a lot of momentum. um, And it's just, you know, it's just as we touched on kind of um, not, not, not being seduced by kind of the single source, um, or even kind of (laughs) multi-source solutions. And, you know, continuing to realize that, like, you know, let's say we have much stronger kind of literacy and reading laws in different states, you know, there are kids of color and lower income kids who are still going to be in schools that have much higher teacher turnover rates um, and much less experienced teachers overall and just continuing um, to kind of, I think, hold ourselves accountable um, and to keep up that level of 
outrage about um, the reading results and gaps in the in the country, which really should be tr- troubling to anyone. Absolutely. And I feel most hopeful by, I mentioned this, but the graduate students I talk to, I feel so hopeful. I, I feel every day I get, I'm so um, honored to be able to interact with them because they, they really are our future and they're coming through these systems. And I feel like they are rising their voices up. They're, they're not going to stand for it. And they're thinking about solutions. And I every day have these conversations and I'm just so enheartened by them because they're the next generation, which is really going to, you know, push this forward um, and be in control of some of these systems. So I I feel hopeful for them as well. Um, And so, yeah, I'm very excited about that. Uh, So what, okay. So thinking about time, I I could talk to you forever, Sarah, and I feel so lucky that we get to chat often. And I'm, I'm glad we could share this discussion with the listeners uh, I'll put a lot of resources in our show notes to for what all the pieces we've we've discussed for those to go further. But the final two questions I always ask every guest. Uh, the first one is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? Um, I guess I would mention two things. Um, you know, I um I feel really lucky that I've been able to get kind of funding and publication partners to continue. Um, reporting on reading and, and literacy. And last academic year, I was actually based in Milwaukee for a fellowship. Um, and I I interviewed a lot of adults in Milwaukee who had graduated from the school system and never really learned to read fluently. Yeah. Um, and it and some of the some of those were kind of the most compelling interviews that I've done over the course of this reporting. And so I'm, I'm glad to have some time to kind of report out that piece um, over the spring and go back to Milwaukee and, and maybe address some of the gaps in the adult education system more explicitly. Um, um, I'm also hoping that the podcast, what my students taught me, not reading centric, but I'm hoping to revive that. um, And I'm really, really excited about that. Oh, I'm so, both those sound amazing. And I'm so glad to hear you're going to revive that podcast because, wow, so much more to dig into there as well. That's great. Uh, And then I also ask, uh, you know, in the spirit of reading and literacy and language, what is your favorite book from your childhood or now? Um, That is tough. (laughs) Um, I, um, You know, and if I'm being completely honest, like, you know, I think some of my favorite books that like just bring up the most warm and fuzzies from my childhood are ones like Ramona or the Trixie Belden series. I don't know. It was about this girl detective, but I would also single out Tuck Everlasting. Um, I don't know if you've read that. It's, um, I read it, I think in third grade and it, um, it was about um, this family that was immortal and they would meet every, it was something like every 10 years. It might've even been every 30 years. Um, they had, they had drunk water from a stream and it made them immortal. <laughs> um, and it wasn't like, it wasn't a favorite in the sense of like Ramona or Trixie Belden in terms of like, just being these this plot and characters that I found really appealing, but I think it was the first book at least that I remember reading 
that just made me think about deeper things <laughs> that just made me realize books could really like, they could be more than entertainment. Um, because I was a kid, you know, before the internet, before like books were my entertainment and Tuck Everlasting was the first one that, you know, I started thinking, would it, would you want to be immortal or not? Um, and, um, yeah. And I, I, thinking like having done all this reporting over the last couple of years on literacy, it just, it makes you realize that you, you can't take for granted having those experiences as a, as a kid. Oh, that's so true. That That's so true. It is truly the window into deeper thinking and so many different aspects. So, oh, that's great. I have to look that up. I think I've heard about it. Did they make a movie about it? They did. Yeah. I don't remember if I saw the movie, but I remember that book just at least causing me to think deeply. <laughs> awesome. oh, well, Sarah, thanks so much for chatting with us today. I, I really appreciate your time and I'm excited to share your uh, reporting with our listeners. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. This was a great, great conversation. And I'm so glad that you're you're doing this podcast. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.